Hi, and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I'm so happy to have you here. Today, we're talking about a very timely topic, voting, and what it means for a representative democracy like ours. My guest today is the amazing Kim Whaley. Kim is a constitutional law professor. She's a scholar in the area of separation of powers. She's been an assistant U.S. attorney, practiced law, done a number of different things in her career, but she's made this notion of civic literacy and helping people who should know um, about these topics, helping to educate us in a way that maybe we're not getting this in school. It's become her passion and her calling, and we'll talk to Kim about what we should know. She is also the author of two fabulous books, including this one, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. It comes on the heels of an earlier book that she wrote that really got her started on this work of educating the populace more broadly about civics. The earlier book is called how to read the Constitution and why. I'm very excited to have Kim join us today. Kim, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. So happy to be here. So happy to have you. So happy to have you. Congratulations on the book. Yeah, thank you very much. We're in now week two and, uh, and hoping to get, get it in people's hands because November's coming up around the corner, as we yeah. know. And today's a huge day in Kentucky and New York. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you are really essentially sounding an alarm bell to, with this book. Talk about what your concerns are and really the message that you're trying to get across to people. Well, my concerns are that, you know, voter registration and participation is down. We saw in Kentucky, even the number of people that asked for uh, mail-in ballots, a lot of them didn't send them in. And we are in a moment where democracy itself, in my view, is on the ballot in November. We are slipping into something that looks more like authoritarianism. And whether you like the current occupant of the White House or not, it, the, the office itself, the limits on the White House power um, have, have shifted. And mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to send a very strong message to all our political leaders across uh, the, the ideological spectrum from you know, federal to state to local, that government by the we the people is still very strong and it's individual voters that matter. Um, but we have a crisis of civic literacy in this country and uh, people are, are apathetic about voting and, and I'm trying to shift that by education, the importance of it, um, and, uh, and just the logistics of it. The book walks through all the logistics for all 50 states. Yeah. Why did you sort of take this particular tack? This is an interesting approach, right? People may see this and say, okay, I've been voting for 30 years. Why do I need this book? Because this is not a book written for kids. This is a book written for everyone. There's a lot of stuff that's in here. So why this particular approach? Well, you know, I've been teaching law now for since 2006, and I tend to teach the kind of headier, complex constitutional type classes. And what I found over the years is people coming into law school have, there's an assumption they know really basic things, like what's the difference between a case and a piece of legislation. And I've learned you can't assume any of that coming in even to law school. So I break all of it down into basics for my first years and just decided it's time to bring that sort of common sense outside of the law school classroom and not um, not assume people know these things because if it's not really broken down and explained, you pick stuff up, but you really can't explain, for example, 
oh, I need to change my voter registration. What do I do? Most people can't answer something that basic. So as you know, last summer I, I launched what you need to know or how to read the constitution and why. So it has constitutional basics. And then after writing that book, I realized all of our government really comes down to the ballot box. I mean, it, it all roads point to the same, the same center, which is voting. And it's confusing and complicated in this country. And we have such low turnout that my view is that step one to changing that is basic education. Yeah. I suspect, too, some people will pick up this book or see the title and they'll say, okay, this is a, you know, this is a partisan uh, attempt to encourage, you know, to sort of take, take a particular position on one side of the political aisle or the other. Talk about the approach that you took in this book and why it's not a partisan exercise. Yeah, I was re really careful and it's important to me to, to reach people across the political spectrum. I believe that you know, it's not government by we the Democrats or we the Republicans, it's government by we the people. And divisions within, the, within America, cre creating factions, that's what actually degrades democracy. So this is, like I tell my students, I can tell you how to ride a bike, but you have to get on the bike and ride it yourself. And maybe you'll stumble, maybe, you know, you'll tip over a few times. This book has the basics. So regardless of where you are in the political party, uh, political spectrum, you can get on the bike and ride, ride the bike and make your own decisions. I think most people don't like to be talked at and told what to think. Uh, my objective with these series of books, and I hope to continue it, is to, is to help people learn how to think. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, law, law school does teach people how to break concepts down, how to gather information on both sides, how to wrestle with ambiguity, gray areas. And there's a lot of gray in our voting system. There's a lot of issues that aren't quite black and white. And um, I bristle, it's understandable, but I bristle a lot at uh, our, our culture's knee-jerk reaction to try to put someone in the red bucket or the blue bucket. I kind of want to be in the America bucket. Um, right. And we can agree to disagree on things, but still find some common ground as Americans. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. Talk a little bit about why this notion of voter turnout has become such a partisan issue or perceived you know, to be a partisan issue, I should say. Right. Well, I mean, historically, just to back up a little bit, you know, most democracies on the planet are opt out democracies. That is, everyone's automatically registered. You get your card from the, from the government and you have to make a concerted effort to get out of, the, of that process. In America, it's the opposite. We opt in. And that stems in part from the fact that when the Constitution was ratified, only wealthy male white landowners could vote. That's how the original Constitution was set up. And so over the years with various amendments um, and the Voting Rights Act, the, the tent has been opened, opened, opened. But it still is this sense of who, has, who, who are the right people to have the right to vote. Like that, that sort of informs the entire process. And there, there, there's a belief and that keeping people home from the polls um, is one way to win elections. Uh, and I say this because it was one of the tactics in 2016 that Vladimir Putin and the Russian bots utilized planting false evidence to make people mad at each other, Americans divided, and to keep people angry and home from the polls. That's a way uh, for, for outside forces, they believe, to win elections. And so, you know, I, I think we are, unfortunately, as Americans, swimming against the tide to, to protect our right to vote. Um, there's a lot of ways that make it hard to have it actually work. And my message is it's worth it. Just like you take your kids and you, you, know, you get them their flu shots, even though they don't want to go. 
um, it, it, you know, this is that important, not just for ourselves and where we are on, you know, in our, what we care about right now and in, in issues, I, th I believe you care about climate change, immigration reform, the economy, wherever you are, none of you, none of that matters if you can't really vote. That's number one. So, so all of those issues are, they hinge on a functioning uh, electoral process, number one. But number two is, you know, my kids can't, I have a couple kids that can't vote, but I have two kids, I have four kids, two kids who can't vote. So I really feel like to, to create the, the world and the country and the environment that, that I want for my children, I need to participate now because they are disenfranchised by virtue of their age. So I think it's a real uh, ethical, moral, and also as a mother, an obligation uh, to participate in our democracy. And, and I, I really don't have a view on where people are as far as who they vote for. I do believe that if the numbers were not 55, 50 or 55 percent, but 85 or 90 percent of participation, politicians would start listening more to individual people and less to, you know, big money and dark money, which is really flooded politics. You cover literally soup to nuts in this book, and, but arguably, much of this is information that we should be learning in school when we study civics, when we study history. And while some of it presumably is taught, much of it isn't. Let's talk about maybe how we got to this point and what you see as, as potentially some solutions as we think about starting younger, right? It's great to say for, for folks like us who've been voting for a while, we can learn some things that we didn't know or have a refresher on that, but our kids are not necessarily learning what's in this book that really is so essential. So what would you do about that? Well, I mean, the step one is obviously to write the book and, and get it on people's shelves or get it in schools. I was really happy to hear from a friend whose child is in a private school in Washington that it's on the summer reading list. My last book, How to Read the Constitution and Why. I think it's also modeling. So creating an environment in the home where we're modeling, not just voting, but l educating ourselves about the issues. Um, one of the classes I taught this semester uh, at American University was a seminar about issues relating to democracy and the Constitution. And what I had the students do is read op-eds from various sources on every legal topic. And it was really eye-opening for them. They said, I've never read so many opinions on things. And it really shifted, not so much what they thought, but how they thought about things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did sort of at the end of the semester, I, we did a little round table, what did you get out of this? And they said, this is the first time I've been able to come to the table and talk about these hard issues and not feel vulnerable, not feel attacked, not feel like I had to pigeonhole someone. I, it was sort of, someone said something like, it was identifying the criteria to get to an outcome rather than starting at the outcome. And so I think modeling a different approach to how we think about hard problems in the home is very important. And you know, education itself, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I do know there's critiques of No Child Left Behind, right, which was legislation that came out under the Bush administration that was, had very good aims, which was to keep, get everyone's level, uh, every child's level of basic education up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it focuses on math and reading to the, to the exclusion of other disciplines. And it's very content-based. Mm -hmm. um, like I tell my students, if if you can Wikipedia the answer, no one is going to hire you as a lawyer to figure out the answer. Right. How you think about it, not what the answer is. If the answer, no one's yeah. going to pay you a thousand dollars an hour in Washington, right? Right. Um, and so it's it's I think 
trying to shift the conversation around outcomes and putting ourselves in one camp or another and how to think about these things and recognizing there's common ground and these are gray areas. They're thorny. They're, they are not black and white. So when we try to think about it black and white, I think the debate's over because that it glosses over the ambiguity. So, so I'm really committed to, um, you know, to trying to start this dialogue and, and encourage this dialogue around basic civic literacy. Yeah. You know, I've heard stories about teachers, uh, particularly in public schools, that are really concerned about talking about politics, talking about civics, because we are so polarized in our politics right now that if you're not really prepared for all the places where those conversations are likely to go, it can be thorny. And so that there, you know, in some respects, maybe a bit of a default to say, I'm just not going to deal with that because they're worried about how you, how you have that conversation. How do you create the environment in your classroom, whether it's in the law school classroom, like you're doing, or in, you know, high school, high school civics class? How do you do that, Kim, so that you really get the benefit of all points of view and you're treating each other fairly and equitably, but you have a robust exchange of views and opinions. How, how do you create that environment? Well, I mean, I do it a few ways. Um, one of my tricks is to break the students into small groups. So I'll pose a question and it'll be kind of a neutral, you know, non-political. It won't be, well, do you like ex-politician or not? And then, and then they have to talk about it with each other. And so they develop kind of a relationship with two or three other people. Then they're brought to a larger, the larger classroom and they have, they have some buy-in to the people they spoke to. Cause I think that it's easy to alienate people or easy to get angry when you don't have an actual face-to-face -face personal relationship. It's a little easier. So, so that is one thing. The other thing that I am, you know, when comments are made that could be taken one way or the other, I tend to reframe them. Mm -hmm. So I make a real point of whatever the contribution is made in the class, um, I will figure out a way to have a dialogue with that student where we can agree on something that that student said that could be taken to the whole class, right? So uh, if it's something that is politically in, maybe insensitive, I might ask it a different way, get them to a place where they feel comfortable that other other people would not disagree with that. And then we use that as a springboard. Again, I think you have to have some courage as a teacher to dive in there and actually manage, you know, manage the, the classroom. My, one of my first jobs out of law school was working for a federal judge. Um, and it, this was during the OJ Simpson trial and oh, watching wow. how that was a complete chaos. And my judge, he ran a tight courtroom. You know, it's people, he, you knew who was in charge. And I think that sense of, okay, someone is, someone is in here managing this, takes the le tension level way down because the students don't feel they have to get their backs up and protect themselves and their point of view. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I, think, I think having, at least from my experience, that, that's, a, that's a big difference. The other thing is having people read different points of view that are empirically based, evidence-based. You know, I've done this, this conversation a few times about this book and oftentimes Collins people will call in and say, well, what about, you know, non-citizens um, voting? That's a, that's a real problem, broad, broad, broad. And, and you know, if, that, if there's evidence of that, I, w I think I agree it's a very serious problem. And so I'll credit that, for example. I, I do think that'd be a serious problem. There just isn't the evidence of that. So, so we have to 
start the conversation based on actual facts, um, and then deal with, in a matter of triage, what are the biggest problems to voting? That's not it, right? There are other huge problems in electoral process. I'm not saying that doesn't matter, but let's prioritize. We do it as parents all the time, right? We, we decide, you know, okay, what, pick my battle with my kid in terms of where I'm gonna draw the line. And this is one of those. So I think these are just little tactics. We use our common sense, try to people, bring people into dialogue, use compassion, and just model that we're not gonna just go for the dog whistles on either side of the aisle. I just don't do that. And it yeah. doesn't happen, frankly, Laura, in my classes. It's never been a problem. It's so interesting because you do hear these concerns from an awful lot of teachers. And it's, you know, the environment is very, very challenging. But I think that's, it's incredibly it's good advice uh, and something that, frankly, we can all take to heart. So this latest book comes on the heels of an earlier book that you wrote focused on what we need to know to read the Constitution, what we should know and why, and the exact title, which I will which I want to make sure that I get exactly right, how to read the Constitution and why. So talk about that was your first sort of foray, I think, into simplifying civics um, in sort of the first topic that you were focused on. So talk about why you started there and what you were trying to accomplish with that book. Yeah, so I was reading the New York Times one summer a few years ago. I think maybe it was 2018. And there was a statement in one of the, excuse me, articles about the pardon power, the executive, the president's power, 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 pardon power. And the statement was, the pardon power is absolute. There are no limits on the pardon power. Uh, that's just not fully accurate. I mean, all of the constitution is contextual and there's balancing tests everywhere. So I wrote my first op-ed, um, basically clarifying how to think about this, that you can't just have, the constitution isn't black and white. I mean, you can't enslave people. There are a few things that are black and white. Um, and I was under a contract to write a very scholarly book for Cambridge on outsourcing in the constitution. When you use private contractors to perform government acts, what does the constitution have to say about it? And I found myself as I started writing more op-eds, writing a different book. Uh, I'm like, this book is not written for other scholars. I'm starting to, to break down these ideas like I do in the classroom. So I, you know, I got an agent and Harper took, took the idea in 24 hours. I, I pitched it no, and they, 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 yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I think what I have found even in, you know, among highly educated people around Washington, you know, the cocktail party or not, a lot of basic civics just isn't in people's vocabulary. And there's almost, uh, an embarrassment sometimes that, 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 that it's not there. It wasn't taught and it wasn't taught in a way that they can have that knowledge in their backpack and walk around with it. So my books are very much use common sense examples, lots of metaphors that, that, that make sense in your own life that if you can't remember, Oh, this provision of the constitution or this case, you can remember something like you slow down. Uh, if you know, there's a speed camera, hiding in the bushes. It's not the, the speed camera, the speed limit itself that manages your behavior. It's the consequence. And that's the same for the president. That's the same for Congress. Excuse me a second. Um, okay. I think someone just, one of my kids just came in. I'll let my dog. Is that your dog or my dog? Maybe. My dog. <laughs> so uh, the, the objective of the books is to use analogies that people can carry with them in their regular lives. And I was talking about, you know, I use the speed camera analogy a lot. The question with the government and the president isn't so much can the president do that, but if the president does it, what's the consequence? If there's no consequence, the answer to the first question is yes. 
it's not so much what the law is. Mm -hmm. It's what's the what's the consequence for violating the law. And it, it, you know, if you're a parent, you know this. You can have a no eating in the living room rule, and you let your kid eat one time in the living room, and there's no consequence. The rule is gone. <laughs> the kid knows you're not serious about that, and you're not going to enforce it. So who cares about the rule? It's exactly the same with the Constitution. I think that's a really um, eye-opening concept for a lot of people that they'll take away from the book, for example. So when you turn on the TV and it's, oh, this happened with Bill Barr or this happened, again, the, the question is, okay, well, if this is not okay, what's the consequence? If it's, there's no consequence, that is the new normal. And that baton, that seat of power, that amount of power, the belt and suspenders of the office will go to the next president. So I really think Joe Biden, if he wins, is going to take on a, a, an office with a lot more power than Donald Trump had because of how this Congress has handled Donald Trump. Interesting. And, and I, so that's where, again, Laura, I don't see this as a partisan question. Um, it's, a, it's a job description question right. for Americans, for who gets to have the power to, uh, our own power to self-govern. Yeah. Yeah. We're our own bosses in that regard, but not if we don't issue the, speed, the ticket for speeding. Yeah. You know, another area that I'd love for you to talk uh, a little bit about because of your background as an expert in separation of powers is that the Supreme Court has become a very controversial body in the minds of an awful lot of people. And the reason why that has happened, I think, is very important, and it goes to the heart of your expertise. <laughs> Lack of, you know, one branch doing their job leads to, you know, a significant impact on the decisions that are taken up and made. Talk a little bit about this shift that has occurred and why this has happened. Well, yeah, the, the, there, that's much misunderstood. I mean, I think a lot of people want things to go to the Supreme Court. Um, I'm not so much in that camp because the Supreme Court construes the Constitution. It reads the, the language of the Constitution. Anyone who right. claims that there are good judges and bad judges based on how they read the Constitution doesn't understand or is not admitting it's an old document. Right. I, in my first book, I have a poem. And we, 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 as an example, different ways of reading language of a poem, language of the Bible. Constitution's the same way. You've got to interpret it, right? So judges do that. But when you put a case before the United States Supreme Court that's under the Constitution, they read it, that's like amending the actual Constitution. The only way to change that reading is to change the configuration of the court, have them reverse themselves, or do a constitutional amendment, which would be two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters ratification of the states. It's set in stone. So I would rather see things happen in the legislature through legislation that we can change. If we don't like it, we can tweak it. We can you know, elect leaders in there that, that are politicians that are gonna change the legislation. Um, and what's happened, I think in part, is that this, the Congress, due to this divisive party politics over country uh, that I think has taken hold starting in the 90s, is not uh, doing its job anymore. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of critique understandably of the rise of the bureaucracy and the regulatory state and agencies have too much power. Well, they're doing that because they have to fill in the blanks of Congress when Congress isn't doing the work. Uh, DACA, we saw this with Obama. We had a big decision last week, a lot of critique of DACA. That in part, president stepped in because Congress wasn't doing it. Uh, so, so I think the breakdown of Congress, which is a whole conversation we can have, um, is, is, has a lot to do with why the power is shifting to the other two branches of government. And 
um, that, that's really a problem because Congress is, in theory, the most representative body of all three. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, it's bipartisan. They're there to represent individual constituents from both sides of the aisle. And, and they're just, they're stuck. They're not compromised, just like in the classrooms you're talking about. Compromise, reaching across the aisle, making deals is somehow now perceived as weak. Um, but of course, that's how our whole system is based. Right. Uh, the framers, that's the whole deal. Uh, and so what I tell people, if you're red, you're blue, in a primary, find the moderate that's going to make deals and reach across the aisle. Find the one that's willing to work with a reasonable person, regardless of political party. That's what's going to get the country going. Um, if you get locked in, you know, far left or far right ideology, we're stuck. And then we'll see the Supreme Court picking stuff up um, where I, I agree they, sh they shouldn't be doing it. But I, I don't think it's fair to say they're good and bad judges on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, that, that I just don't think is correct. Mm -hmm. Putting them in the position of essentially having to be a an additional legislative body is in and of itself sort of a misunderstanding of what it is that their job is to do, is, is what you're saying. And I think that's a really important element that is lost on an awful lot of people. And when they see decisions coming down, they're reading it as if it had come from a legislative body as opposed to the Supreme Court. So at a very basic level, there's just not that understanding. Yeah, and it does, in effect, function as legislation in that it's the highest statement of law in the country on something. Um, but it's very different conceptually. And I tell this I explain to my students. Uh, difference between legislation and a court case. Legislation is prospective. We are going to pass a law that, that affects the future. And it's generalized, all people in the future. So, so a good policymaker takes into account all the implications of legislation in the future on a huge population. Cases are the exact opposite. It's retrospective. There's a fight that happened in the past and the judges are supposed to decide who wins that particular fight. And it's very discreet. It's two parties. It's, and so they're just deciding how to re resolve that dispute in the past regarding these two parties. But it has implications. You have to then read the tea leaves of that, de that, that decision and apply it to new situations like a legislature. It's fundamentally a different, different exercise. But as you indicate, because the Supreme Court, I think, is getting cases they shouldn't, you know, they've always have, and it's an important body. But there are things that could be done in the legislature that's not happening. And I think that would be much, much better for the American public to have legislatures actually start working and let the, let the courts just really dissolve, resolve disputes between individual parties and not make these sweeping decisions that affect all Americans because they're not representative. These people are there for life. And now with the filibuster for Supreme Court judges and ju federal judges being killed uh, you know, by politicians in Congress, we have people on the court, half of the population feeling and legitimately feeling disenfranchised from that appointment. So they don't buy into the legitimacy of the court. Um, that's a problem. But that again goes back to the Congress. I want to dig into uh, back to the topic of voting and a couple of areas that I think 
are sort of interesting. One is an idea that's, that is being put forth in certain circles around this notion of ranked choice voting and what that means. I'd love for you to sort of give us a little bit of a discussion. And then I wanna shift and talk about the Electoral College because I think it's so misunderstood. So on ranked choice voting, this is an idea that's gotten some life in some circles. Talk about what that means and what impact that might have. Right, so both of those actually, I'm glad you brought them up in one question because I do think they're related. Uh, and it's about how you count votes, both of them. Uh, so normally we will go into the, to the ballot box and we have this two-party system, Democrats, Republicans. That's not in the constitution, by the way, um, but it's taken over politics. And you get two choices and it's all or nothing. You put all your eggs in this basket or all your eggs in that basket. Uh, if you don't like either of the options, some people feel really like, I don't wanna vote because these are terrible options and why is this my only choice? Ranked choice voting is used in other parts of the world in other democracies. It basically allows you to, to list the people that you would be okay with by order of preference. And you can pick from both sides of the aisle. So you might say, here's my first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. And then all of the ballots are counted up for all five. And then you cross out the, the, the lowest, uh, the loser, the, lowest, the person who gets the least amount of votes. They're then off the ballot. And then you keep doing that calculus until you basically get to, to options that are, um, are there's buy-in from both sides of the aisle because everybody kind of liked these people the best. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like uh, weighing in on, you know, liking something on, on Instagram. Um, and so there are benefits to that in part because it, it brings everyone to the table. You're not sort of disenfranchised if your candidate just didn't get enough and you feel frustrated you have buy-in uh, in the entire process. So even if it's not your first choice, you got somebody on there that you like. It allows, as I indicated earlier, I think finding more moderate candidates is probably a good thing for democracy so that we can get some more deals done in the Congress and in the, at the state level. So it also allows, um, you know, it allows more options in terms of uh, just moderate candidates crossing the aisle. Uh, so some of the problems, with it, I mean, there are pockets in the United States that are using it. It's just, it takes some skill and expertise and experience to actually have this executed properly. And you have to wait a little longer to get the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and we have this knee jerk we want on election night to know who won. Um, that might change because I think with COVID and mail-in voting, it's gonna take longer to vote to actually count ballots. So maybe that'll shift. So, so that's ranked choice voting. Um, but it just shows if you tweak at the state level how things are done, you can have big impacts without a constitutional amendment, without going to the Supreme Court, without these big sweeping changes. The Electoral College was created by the framers because they were worried about small states basically being gobbled up by the federal government and being outshined by the larger states. So it's a way of kind of, to kind of like every state gets two senators regardless of size. Also just, we, we don't want the little guys to be, to be snuffed out. Because um, remember, back then it was we the, the New Yorkers or the Virginians. They were right. really, really loyal to their state. Um, the problem again with the Electoral College is how you count the votes. In most states, it's a winner-take-all system. So let me, let me uh, give an example. Say you have a state that gets 10 electors. So it's the electors that actually cast the votes for president. That's the difference between the Electoral College and the popular vote. And under most states, the electors go along with the popular vote. Um, the theory is that they can do on what they, they can think independently, but they don't really think independently. I and mean, that was the framers theory. They basically just cast based on what the popular vote is. However, 
if you've got 10 electors for one state and you've got 60% who voted for, for uh, Joe Biden, 40% who voted for Donald Trump, all 10 electors in most states have to vote for Joe Biden in the Electoral College. Another alternative would be proportionate voting. Six go for Joe Biden, four go for Donald Trump. Then when they're casting votes for the, for the presidency, the Electoral College actually mirrors the popular vote. Um, with a winner-take-all system, all of the electors go, so long as someone gets 51% of the vote, they get all those electors. That's where the disconnect happens. And, and so people who voted for the losing candidate in your state feel disenfranchised. And when there's narrow margins in the, in the popular vote, you see this, I don't know, four times in our history, where the Electoral College goes a different direction because in, certain, in most states, they got, whoever won got all the electoral votes, even though they didn't get the, all the popular votes percentage-wise. So that's something that could be tweaked at a state level through your state legislature. You can keep the electoral college and not have, again, another reason for Americans to be mad at each other. I mean, that's one of my objectives, Laura. Let's just take some of this stuff off the table um, that we don't have to fight about and be mad at each other about. We can fix it in a rational way. Um, let's have elections that actually work, right? That we don't have fraud, but it's not so hard to actually vote. Um, that takes political will, it takes money. Uh, but I would love it if people could just not fight, not fight about legitimacy of elections. Let's let everybody who can, who's a, who can vote, vote safely and securely, and then, and then have real policy debates about serious issues that are gonna affect our children in the future. Let's talk a little bit about technology, Kim, and the fact that we are still in the midst of COVID. You know, there are, are loosening guidelines where we can get out and about, but still with masks and things like that, and recording this podcast remotely still, and probably will be for some time. When people go to the polls in November, it's going to look potentially very different from the way it has in the past. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on technology, on mail-in ballots, kind of what we're looking at over the course of the next few months. Well, today's a great day to ask that question because of course, um, people in Kentucky are going to the polls today uh, for their primary. And, and hopefully I'll get this, uh, so we're recording on Tuesday, June 23rd, and I'll hopefully get the, get the conversation up either later this afternoon, but more likely tomorrow morning on Wednesday. So people okay, listening so will week. have, yeah. So this week we've seen people go to the polls in Kentucky for the primary, uh, 750,000 residents for a single polling place, right? That, and just imagine the logistics of that and that's due to COVID. Right. So the polling places, as we saw in Wisconsin, we saw it in Georgia, there are going to be long lines um, because they don't have the poll workers because of uh, just the, the date for various reasons. Some of it is actual you know, nefarious voter suppression. That's why we're seeing this push for mail-in voting. Um, but even with that, you know, we have, a, we have a postal service that's running out of money. Uh, the postal service is slower than usual. You might not get your mail-in ballot. So I, th I think, you know, this is just some, one of those things every American who, who's eligible to vote has to take this into their own hands. Kind of like, you know, you pack up your backpack with, you know, the, the granola bars and, and drinks for your kids, right? Because you might be gone for the day. It's, you have to ask for your your mail-in ballot, um, and there is no real serious evidence of fraud. So the president is just wrong on that, and so that just needs to be set aside. Ask for your mail-in ballot. Um, every state but five, I think now, you can do it based on COVID and get one. Uh, get, get it in the mail. Actually actually cast your 
your ballot as soon as you get it. If that doesn't work, if you don't get it in time, I think check on your the, the Secretary of State's website for your state that has the most accurate information. My, it's in my book as well, mm -hmm. but these things are changing. It's also on my website, the COVID changes, kimwhaley.com. Um, but get on your Secretary's web state website, see if your polls are open early, go to the polls with your you know, hand sanitizer and your mask. Barring that, I think we're, we're gonna have to just plan to wait in line in November. Um, and what's really, I think, tragic about it is it is this choice between between health and um, protecting your health and exercising your constitutional right to vote. And there are a lot of failures around that. I mean, the Brennan Center of Justice estimates you need $2 billion, we need $2 billion to have a, a good election in the fall. It should come from the federal government. That legislation is not, not happening. Um, one of the COVID bills gave the states $400 million, but that's not what they need. So, so a lot of the problems in our electoral system is it's just they don't, they don't have the money. Um, it's been 2000. Last time the federal government gave serious money for equipment on election day was 2002. I mean, how many people are using a flip phone from 2002 in your personal lives? Right. Uh, you know, I just think, Laura, I just think this is a no brainer. This should just be, this should just be, this should not be a hard thing. It should run like clockwork. We have the technology. We just don't have the political power and the political will to do it. So, you know, one of my areas of, uh, of passion for a number of years has been getting more women engaged in politics and engaging civically. I'm curious if you've ever thought about running for political office <laughs> or maybe rather than putting you on the spot, so I didn't mean to do that, but, but also like how you look at the data around women's engagement generally and kind of how that breaks down, how voting breaks down along gender lines if you have that data or some sense of it. Yeah, you know, I don't have that data um, at my fingertips, but I do know, you know, one of the big constituents in this particular election that is, is shifting, I think, in the Republican side, as far as I understand, are women. Uh, and that women are, are shifting away from uh, traditionally, you know, I shouldn't say traditionally, Donald Trump in particular. Uh, and if you if you were to drive down my street, I, I have four daughters, and they pulled out of a dumpster a literally giant, giant blue and white uh, banner that says "Vote for more women." And they pull it out of the garage every time there's an election. They're like, "Mom, you can't take it down." I mean, I I, you know, I do think women, just from a personal anecdotal level, I, I think we think differently. We're we're collaborators. We're problem solvers. Uh, mm -hmm. Our brains are are wired in a way that we can juggle a lot of stuff at once and manage it. We can prioritize um, and we can do things with passion and communication and understanding. I don't mean to say every woman's like that or men aren't, um, but I do think this is, this is one sort of easy, another easy way. It's not a one size fit, that fits all, but getting more women in politics, we, we might see things change uh, just by virtue of the personality and the way women are, are um, you know, we're consensus builders and we're, we, you know, again, I, I'll probably get in trouble for sounding very gendered, uh, but I am a, I'm a, I'm a believer in, in that as one way, I think, to just shift the energy around this, which is so stuck and causing so many intractable problems. Um, but people can get involved without actually running for office. You know, for, if you get one person who's not voted before registered today or this week or next week, uh, if we all did that, we'd go from 50% of eligible voters to a much higher number. So you could have an impact, you know, just call grandma or aunt Lor you know, Lorraine or your next door neighbor or your colleague and, and get that going. 
Uh, we can we can make an impact, and I think dialing into our, our instincts as uh, as mothers, frankly, which is a big part of my identity, really drives this work that I do. Yeah, yeah. You have, I think it's fair to say, found your passion. You found uh, these topics that just light you up inside. Talk about that journey to get to that point and how you knew this was the area that you wanted to focus on because you've done a number of different jobs within the legal profession. Talk about how you found this, this calling. Yeah, it, sort of, it definitely found me. I know that's a little bit cliche. Um, but, you know, I spent a lot of, I've been a lawyer a long time and then I was in, um, I've been teaching, which is a different way of thinking, right? Teaching is, since 2006, I've been teaching law students and, you know, I, I've taught at a range of schools and a range of people coming in with their backgrounds in terms of their educational backgrounds, their, their, their comfort level in, in a law school classroom. So I've had to figure out how to pitch things in a way that reaches lots of people. Um, and without sacrificing content, without sacrificing the nuance, the theory, the complexities. So, so I did that for a long time. And then, uh, and I've been writing, as you mentioned, the separation of powers, which just seems sort of wonky and boring. Now, now, it's, now the separation of powers is sexy, right? Now nobody <laughs> wants to talk about it. Um, and, and so I, I just have this, um, it does feel like, okay, it's time. It's time to take these skills as a parent and as a teacher translating complex wonky stuff into digestible understandable you know sort of tools that people can use to think for themselves and so you know on, on a personal level it's actually a uh, you know a, 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 i've never talked about this publicly but i also went through a, a really difficult divorce um after 20 years of marriage and all the, and four children and i think that definitely gave me this sense of okay i can I can do anything. I can do hard things, and you know, uh, people can disagree with me. That's okay. I don't need people to agree with me to have my own truth around these things. And I, I do think that those two things coming together at this point in my life has just given me the, the gas in the tank, so to speak, yeah. uh, to, to share my energy in a different direction. Yeah. So when you think about the impact that you hope to have with this work, sort of looking back on it. What do you hope that will be? Well, you know, I do hope that that this message gets gets bigger. I mean, I'd like to look back and see uh, see this notion of thinking, talking about how to think, and talking about how to. And this sounds a bit cliche, but but talking about you know the importance of building blocks of education as as a, a foundational concept. I would love to see some of these influencers, celebrities, people on social media, you know, social media gets such a bad rap, but let's face it, this is, this is our world, mm -hmm. to start capturing some of that technology um, and our, our young people and to make it cool to understand this, these things, to, to feel empowered, to understand this is the way to feel that you're empowered in your life, not to, to drag people down and not to get angry and, and not to, to have to you know, vilify others um, and be in a pack, but to empower yourself uh, to use your own voice and to have your own tools. I would love to see one day, like, remember when Laura and I had that conversation and then, and then that conversation took on in various places, that would be my dream. Um, but even doing this piece, frankly, I, you know, I, I feel, I feel very proud to have, uh, to have this platform to be participating in, in this very critical moment in our democracy. As I said, you know, democracy is on the ballot. Uh, if you imagine yourself, going to the polls in November, and on the ballot would be American democracy or something like North Korea. And I'm not saying that that's what we have right now. I'm just saying if that, if that were theoretically the stark choice, 
and that we're going to make the impact, I really think people would find a way to get themselves registered and voted if, in voting. If, if people understood that's what was at stake, right. and I'm saying as a constitutional scholar, that is what's at stake. And to, to think in the rearview mirror, gosh, you know, now the stormtroopers are at the back door, so to speak, for American democracy, what do I do? That's not the time. Now is the time to quit smoking, right? <laughs> if you want to avoid uh, some serious lung disease. I mean, we've heard this in other parts of our lives, and it's hard to capture this. The urgency of this, and it's not red and it's not blue, and it's much bigger than Donald Trump. It's much bigger than Joe Biden. It's much bigger than this Congress. It's about the American experiment. The framers thought they had 20 years of this. They didn't think it was going to work. And um, we made a couple of centuries, but the last really thriving democracy, traditional democracy, was Athenian Greece 2,000 years ago. It took 2,000 years right. to get it again with America. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to. I'm hanging on for dear life, Laura. I don't, I don't want to wait another 2,000 years. Amen, sister. <laughs> Beautiful. Kim, listen, thank you so much. This was terrific. I really loved the conversation. Appreciate I you joining too. me. I hope we can do it again. Thank you. I would for love that. And in person, hopefully. Yes. Next oh, gosh, that would be great. That would be great. We'll have a <laughs> long right. relationship, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks again. You too. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Yeah. To learn a bit more about Kim, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 110. I will include links to Kim's website, as well as links to both of her terrific books, her latest, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and her earlier book on the Constitution. As always, I am so grateful that you took the time to join us. I hope you learned a few things, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any others. You'll find all of our content on the website at she said she said podcast.com. Take care.